0: One of the things I love about our church is that we work really hard to create environments like Bryce just talked about so that your students can come and have uh, an amazing time and they can learn. But even more important than all that stuff and even having like an amazing worship experience is the connection that they make with other uh, kids and with their small group leaders because that's where they get to have those conversations that make the biggest difference in their lives. I mean, your, your kids need to have conversations with um, people who make them feel like they can talk about the stuff in certain ways that they may not naturally talk about with their friends or even their parents. And uh, it, is, it is critical that your kid is involved in a community outside of whatever you've created at home in order for them to really, really grow and become all that... Um, that they should become and would become, uh, and so today uh, we're talking uh, week two. If you if you haven't seen, then you can go watch week one of Known for It. We're talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus continually and bringing this um, continued level of enhancement to uh, to what it looks like, so that we can just really focus our minds and hearts on the goal and what we're all after as we're in this room where we're watching and what it means to be a Christian and one of the the driving uh, features of this series is that we often make Jesus into our own image instead of letting him make us into his uh, and a lot of us have ideas about who Jesus is and uh might be partially true might be something that we grew up with that's just like completely wrong uh it might be something that is misinterpreted from the Scriptures. Um, or might be, you know, partially right, partly wrong, but I I think that it's important that we come to church on Sunday with the humility uh, that that there's a ton to learn about who Jesus is. Uh, The Bible communicates that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so uh, the Bible tells us that uh, Jesus created the world. You know, he was there in the beginning and created it all. And so he's the beginning and the end. Uh, you know, he he's always been and always will be. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's in, you know infinite. And so that means that there's an eternal amount of learning and, and growing in relationship with him to do and to understand him. You, you know what it's like when you've been married, uh, been married now 20 years, and how much you learn in 20 years and how you still learn new things all the time uh, about the person that you're with. Well, imagine that you have an idea of your spouse that is based upon something that was written about them 2,000 years ago in a different language, in a different culture, in a different part of the world, and you think that you know everything about that person you would never think that. You would be like, wow. And then you live with them. And on top of that, you have a continuation of learning. And so for us to look at Christ and look at what he said means to constantly have our view of who he is and what we think he's calling us to, uh, to change and evolve and grow. And so for some people, that makes you really uncomfortable because you think when something that you learned as a kid, which you thought was fundamental, gets challenged, you feel like your faith or your moorings are being shattered or compromised. And Uh, There are things to stand on, and there are principles that you can never move away from, uh, but none of this is about any of those. This is about bringing enhancement to those concrete things, those orthodox things that never change, bringing to color and to life who Jesus really is. Jesus said in John 13, 35, he said this as he was in one of his many different discussions um, and uh, kind of his his bits that he would do to his disciples about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what what God's whole world through the disciples would look like, what his covenant was with them, what his connection was with them, what, what their reflection of him into the world would connect them to him. What makes you one of his disciples. And in the time of Christ, there were lots of disciples of different types of rabbis and leaders and people all over that region. And there were certain things and qualities that they would know and understand that people might see in action and go, oh, that, that's one of so-and-so's uh, disciples. Oh, the, oh, he does that, he's one of so-and-so's disciples. And Jesus kind of understands that nature of their culture and says, for, for you guys, the thing that's gonna set you apart, the thing that's gonna make it that people go, oh, there's one of Jesus's followers, is this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. This is John 13:35. if you have love, for one another, if you have love for one another. And one of the other times that Jesus does in a a more artful uh, contextual way is uh, earlier when he goes to the uh, Feast of of Tabernacles and they talk about living water and they pour out water and they talk about what it means to be cleansed. And and Jesus stands up and declares in front of all the people of Israel that the nation of of Israel is not all that God is after, but he's after the whole world. He wants everyone to know him. He wants everyone to be brought into that family and that anyone, anyone who drinks of him becomes a follower or a disciple of him will have living water, will have rivers of living water flow from within them. And so what that means is that when we are followers of Christ, we're not just recipients of the spirit of the living God, but we are instruments of the spirit of the living God. We are agents of new life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is you say, I'm gonna follow you, then I'm gonna be like you, and I'm gonna receive all that you are, and then from all that you are, I will become more like you, and from me will flow what you have brought to me. And so when Jesus calls you into his fellowship, he doesn't just call you to be a bucket, Right, He calls you to be more than that, Right, to siphon out and then share, to give. He's trying to transform all of you from the inside out because that's what we need. We need transformation from the inside out, and we do that by becoming conduits of his goodness to the world. And so this is what Jesus has. And when he talks about being conduits of love or having living water flow from within you so that you become an instrument of love, you become an agent of love, you become um, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who brings about the currency of love into the world everywhere you go, he's not just talking about any kind of love. He's not just talking about Valentine's Day love or romantic love or Roman candle hot Hollywood pink love, but self. self-giving love, and love that takes a hit for the team. Real love, uh, agape love, the kind of fatherly, sacrificial, day-to-day, minute-by-minute devotion to the well-being of those whom you are in closest contact with. And one of the biggest, biggest mistakes, especially in our context that humans can make, is believing that love is about finding the right person. You know, I want love, where's the love? I need some love, I want some love. And for so many of us, including myself, we can grow up thinking that for us to have love, a relationship has to be a certain way. So if you have like a damaged past or where a relationship went wrong, then you can really, you know, desire a relationship to to almost fulfill what you feel you lost in the past. And you can be looking for love in all the wrong places. No fine girls, just ugly faces. Making sure you're listening, right? But you can do that, right? You you, you can totally do that. And that's what you do. And you can think, right? You can think that love is about finding the right person. I mean, people will say, I found love. I found love because I found someone. And love is not about finding the right person. Love is about becoming the right person. It's about becoming the right person. Jesus doesn't tell us, that uh, you, know, you will be known by receiving love from other people. You know, he says you will be known by your love. And so love is what you need to become in order for you to be known as one of my disciples. And therefore the journey of love starts with Jesus. And the Bible says in no uncertain terms through John, First John, John was with Jesus and he's the beloved, and he's the one, you know, whom Jesus loved. Uh, There's an intimacy and a connection with John. There's something that John understands about Jesus that uh, probably even none of the other disciples know, so when you talk about, like, knowing your spouse and maybe knowing them from, you know, just through a book or whatever I mentioned before and years ago, and then you learn a little bit about them over 20 years, you have someone here with John who spent some time with Jesus at the Last Supper. You know, John is, you know, kind of leaning up against Jesus. You know, like he's laying his head on, on Jesus's chest, I mean, there's a, there's a connection there. The way that they would do those suppers is more of a round table. They put their feet out to the back and lean to the side like this with their elbows. And so you can kind of see John leaning on Jesus, just the trust and maybe some fear and, and that type of connection. But John says that God is love, that God is love. You know, love is, love is God, right? When you talk about love being a person, it's kind of absurd when we don't understand what love is. God is love, love is God. For you to become a being of love, you need God. Um, uh, he says, beloved, let us love one another, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Born of God. And so love and being known for love. It's not just some kind of thing that Jesus made up, some distinctive that he wanted to, you know, set himself apart from the rest of the people. He actually, it's who he is, right? He doesn't, and it's who he wants us to be, and it's who we are when we follow him. So when he says, you know, you you, you have a new command, Uh, you need to love one another, and this is how people will know you, he's not sending us off on a wild goose chase. He's not making us chase our tails, He's not you know, you know, kind of giving us some weird puzzle to, to figure out. He is sending us down the very pathway with which he has created humans to go down. And he's saying, I want you to be the kind of people I've created you intentionally to be, which is beings of love. I've given you this commandment. This is why I'm here is another thing that Jesus might say. The reason that I'm here is that I want you all to become beings of self-giving love. That's, that's like what I'm here for. And so I wash your feet, I've given you an example and I'll go to the cross, I'm giving you an example and you have to take up your cross. I'm giving you an example, like the reason I'm here is to turn you into beings of self-giving love. And some might say, well, what about you know, going to the cross and the theological uh, distinctions of going to the cross and how that was why he was here? It's the same thing. The reason that Jesus went to the cross it's the same as him turning you into a being of love. He went to the cross so that you could become a being of love because what stops you from being a being of love is what was put on him on the cross, which is sin. And so that's the monkey on your back and he takes the monkey off of your back so that he can give you the freedom, the keys, the pathway to be a being of love. So I love that, you know, I love it when, it's, it's annoying when a leader tells someone to go do something they can't figure out or that they're not for, or they have no chance of figuring out, Jesus is so full of, of grace that he offers us a command that is actually, and this is way better for you, and it's what you were born for, and once you find it out, you'll come alive and you'll be more than you ever thought you could be, and it's just everything you could ever want, and I'm not asking you to like become something that you're not, I'm not asking you, you know, that you would never wanna be, I'm asking you to become what you would really in your heart want to be, and that's what I'm gonna give you the tools to do. And of course, Paul understands this idea of love and brings it into the quintessential passage, which I've talked about a 100 times in our church in First Corinthians 13, where he defines what love is. And we often read this at weddings. It's not a wedding passage. It's a story about Christianity. It's a picture of Christianity, where ultimately what Paul says is what Jesus just got done saying is that love is our destiny. Love is our destiny, that's like where we're headed, that's, that's who we're supposed to be, it's everything we are. And so I want you to, I'm gonna read it quickly, it's actually a relatively short passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, um, I'm gonna read it to you and just stop uh, one time along the way to show you about destiny and then show you distinctions about love, right? So in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's just all I am. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I mean, that's just, but I uh, have not love, I am nothing. It's profound. Uh, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, wait a minute, isn't that what you're talking about? Not necessarily, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. So stop, all of this, all of what I just read or anything like this is not what disciples of Jesus are known for. Think about it that way. Think about the words that were mentioned. What are What's in here? Um, prophetic tongues. You know, it's like, ooh, now distinction, there's a Christian. Mm, not according to Paul. That, that's, not, that's not the thing, right? That's not love. Um, so that's not the distinction that makes a Christian a Christian. Like, those are not bad things, but they're not the thing that make you a disciple of Jesus kind of exclusively. Uh, and if I have prophetic powers, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, like if I had prophetic powers, you know, if I could stand in here and maybe like heal somebody, or if I could uh, be a part of that, you know, or, or uh, maybe if I told you guys something that did seem somewhat futuristic and then it took place, wouldn't you kind of think like without even saying it, like you'd feel it in your heart, well, that guy's really close to God, i.e. there's a Christian, there's someone, right? Wouldn't you kind of think like I'm in the flow more than anybody else? Not, not necessarily. That's not, no, that, that, that's the distinction that he makes, that you can have that and still not be a being of love. Anybody know anyone that has some things, but they don't have those distinctions? He says, I could understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Isn't it something when someone knows a lot and they understand a lot and they kind of can teach you a lot and they can fill up your brain with something and you kind of go, well, then that must be it. Like, and there it is. You can understand all knowledge. But if you don't have love, that's not the distinction that makes you a disciple. Remove mountains, Faith. And then then he gets into this, and I'm gonna get into this more next week, but look what he talks about what love is. So incredibly ordinary. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Knowledge, power, mysteries, Prophetic words. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will Pass away in tongues, they will cease, and knowledge it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And this is where he's showing you that where you are becoming right now, we're little children and we're immature because we don't have love, but we're becoming beings of love. And eventually when we see God face to face, we will be full beings of love and that's our destiny. And Paul says it this way. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up gave up childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly where we're ultimately headed, but one day we'll see him face to face. And so now we know in part, and one day we'll know it all. We'll see him and we'll be known and we'll be fully known and we'll be all that we're supposed to be in terms of being resurrected as images of God's love. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three are great, but of the greatest of these is love. Isn't it amazing? Love is the greatest among the great things. Love is the greatest among the great things, faith and hope. Great to have faith, great to be a person of faith, great to have hope, great to have that wellspring, not the distinction that Jesus makes, nor does Paul. You see, when we talk about being beings of love, it's almost like something clicks, right? It's like we become what we were designed for. We become this kind of this uh, person that experiences life to the full, like the, the, the kind of the, the flourishing, wonderful, happy, bliss-filled, sublime, that's the fullness. And you think it's something else, but it's not. It's actually when we become full beings of love, And that's the picture. And it's almost like, oh, look at that, man. That's just like, it's almost like supernatural the way that when someone acts like that, like a being of love and then the way the marriage works or the way the the leadership works or the way that the parenting works or the way the friendship works or the way that the community citizen works, it's like, wow, it's almost like there was a supernatural design that when that creature in that environment is embodying those distinctives of love, it's like, look at that. It's almost like they were born for that. I was watching The Perfect Planet on a a flight recently, just talking about the beauty of our earth and how it all works together. And there was a a part about how many volcanoes there are, and there's this volcano in Africa, and next to it, there's this very, very um, kind of sulfuric uh, lake. There's almost no life in it right? And it's, it's filled with kind of the acid, the acid and the, I'm gonna say the ashes. Uh, it's filled with the ashes and the acid, pardon, my, uh, pardon uh, my slip, the acid and the ashes of this volcano. And so there's no life in it. But one time a year, there's one animal that flocks. It flies from miles and miles away just to go to that lake. It's a certain type of flamingo. They're the only thing that goes to it. And a certain time of year, the lake, it actually kind of the water goes down and kind of goes into the cracks. So there's a little bit less water and they land right in the center of the lake. This is the only animal there. And they—they they then they hatch their babies. They, they, they have already breeded and they hatch their babies. And they put them in this kind of like pile of acidic sand or whatever, and all this salt and whatever. And then uh, they sit on them and they wait for them to hatch. And when they hatch, they go and they drink the water that no other animal drinks with all this acid and stuff in it that is bad. It would kill most animals. That's why nothing lives there. But they kind of take it and partially digest it. And then they give a part of themselves and a part of this acid. And this acid is what nurtures their babies. And then after a a little while, they fly to the margins of the lake, several miles away, three miles away, where there's fresh water and they start to drink fresh water. And then these babies, they, they kind of come out, and they have to take the three mile trek to go all the way across this lake area that is walkable but this wet. And then they get and find their, their parents, their mom. Now, there's 500,000 every single time, half a million, 500,000. And when they get there, there's 500,000 moms and then there's 500,000 chicks, and every single mom has an individual cry that corresponds to the one single chick. So they find them and they get fed fresh water. Now, when you hear these stories, you're like, they were made for that. It's like natural, it's like intrinsic. It's like there's something in their DNA that like makes them do that. How do they know to fly out there? How do they know that water nurtures them? How do they know to go out to the fresh water? How do they know that when they get out there that they're gonna be able to talk to one another? Every single mom has a unique cry and the, the baby understands it, so they find them. It's amazing. Now, here's the thing. This is a natural thing that leads to life. It's intrinsic. You see, we all have a natural drive. Our drive is natural, but it doesn't naturally lead to the life God has for us. So how do we love when loving others isn't our nature? How do we become what we aren't naturally inclined to do. If everybody was honest in here, you might say that it's not your disposition or it's not second nature for you to be the being of love that Paul described or that Jesus exemplifies. It's not natural. It's something that takes work. It's something that takes effort. It's something that takes focus. So how do we become natural beings of love? And even when we start to move down the pathway of love, How is it that we lose sight? How is it that we forget how to love? How is it that we just constantly need reminded how to love? Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, was asked one day why he prays for the Holy Spirit all the time why do you always pray for the Holy Spirit? You know, the theology is like, you can't get more of the Holy Spirit, so you don't get less of the Holy Spirit, even if you're not feeling the Holy Spirit. So you're talking about the rivers of living water flowing from within you, and his answer is great. He says, why do I pray? He says, because we leak. We leak. We just leak. We just forget. We just put it off, and we don't develop it. And so how do we become natural beings of love? your first answer might be, well, we need to learn. And when you say that you need to learn what love is, at least intellectually, you're only partially right, but being partially right means you're also partially wrong. It's not just about learning. Learning is kind of a piece of becoming a being of love. You might think this, if I learn a lot about Jesus, will I become like him? If I learn a lot about Jesus, will I become like him, right? just gotta learn more about Jesus. If I learn more about Jesus, then I'll become like him. I have a question. Do you ever experience a gap between what you know and what you do? You ever, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been like doing something and you know what to do and then you don't do it? And you're like, I know, how I know that. I knew that. I don't know why I didn't do that. I even know. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I didn't do it. Welcome to pickleball. That is, it's just like you could go online and read about pickleball and figure out all what you're supposed to do and learn the rules real fast, but you're not just gonna go out there. And that's the thing is it looks like, oh my gosh, it means a bunch of old people doing this. Anyone can do this, just gonna, whatever, right? Anyone can play pickleball. And then you get out there and you get your butt kicked by people that have been playing and they know the rules and they have studied and they become refined. And so here's the reality. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be quoting quite a bit from, a guy named James K. Smith, who wrote a book called You Are What You Love, and you should all read that book. You should all read You Are What You Love. And he says this, he says, it seems we can't think our way into holiness. It seems we can't think our way into holiness. Plato said nothing taught by force stays in the soul. Here's what he says about Jesus. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space and reflection of contemplation. He's a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. And to follow Jesus is to become a student of the rabbi who teaches us how to love. To be a disciple of Jesus is to enroll, enroll in the school of charity. You see, we're not rejecting thinking but we're understanding thinking's role in what makes us whole. What is first and foremost is that we all have to come to the realization that as beings, we are not first and foremost thinkers, but lovers. We're designed to love. We're designed with desires. We're designed with yearnings and callings, and we're designed with certain appetites And our bodies move more than anything else based upon the yearnings and the desires of our hearts. We are defined more by what we love than what we know. I want you to ask yourself a question when you think about someone, do you just think about stuff they know or what they do? And what does what they do come from? It comes from what is driving them. It comes from what moves them. It comes from their desires and what, what they're passionate about. Kent says this, to be human is to be for something, directed towards something, or oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something after something. We are like existential sharks, he says, and we have to move to live. We are not just static containers of ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed towards some end. Augustine says this, humans are way more hungry than curious. Life is less like an intellectual puzzle to be solved and more like a craving to be satisfied. As you're listening to me, I want you to think about what moves you, what draws you, what do you want, and how is that embodied in your life every single day? And the truth is, is that we're beings of love, so you can't not love. We are lovers first and foremost. If we think about this in terms of quest or journey metaphor, we might say that the human heart is part compass and part uh, internal guidance system. The heart is like a multifunctional desire device that is part engine and part homing beacon. Our wants are our loves. We are oriented by our longings, directed by desires. We adopt ways of life that are indexed to such visions of the good life, not usually because we think through our options, but rather because some picture captures our imagination. The author of The Little Prince says it this way. He says, if you want to motivate someone, if you want to build a ship, he says, don't uh, drum up people to collect wood and assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So how do you know what you love? How do you know what you love? If you're if you're just naturally someone who's, who's loving and is after something, it's what do you want? What do you want? You got to answer the question, what is it that you want? Have you, have you stopped for a moment? What are you after? What do you long for? What do you desire? What are you hoping for? What's the fire behind the daily routine? What does the daily routine reveal that makes you feel discontent? because there's something else and that routine is a burden and you want something else, but you can't get it and that thing is in the way. What have you set your life up to be? Like if you could paint the picture, what is it that you want it to look like? You are what you love because you live towards what you want. And we don't become beings of love. We are beings of love. We become beings of love who love the right way and for the right things. This is why Paul says to the Philippians, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound, that your love may abound, so that you may be able to discern what is best for your life. If your love abounds, what's best for your life We'll move in the right direction. Your love needs to abound in the depth and in the insight of who God is and who Jesus is. And you need to have this kind of love in your heart cultivated. And so we come back to it. We don't naturally want what God wants or love how God, lo- God loves. So, how do we do what we don't want? How do we do what we don't want? If we don't naturally want what God wants, how do we start to do? what God wants? If it's not what we want and we're just gonna naturally go towards what we want, how do we do what we don't wanna do? And the answer is is simple, but it's not easy. It's change what you want. Change what you want. Define what you want and be honest and then change what you want. You see, the Bible teaches us that the heart is a powerful muscle, the most powerful muscle in the entire body arguably, maybe, close to the tongue. But you have a heart that is the, 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 arguably the, the strongest muscle, and it's driving you. And here's the thing about your heart, and this is something that, that just hit me as I was just contemplating this. Your heart, it speaks the language of heaven. Have you ever had your heart touched You've ever had a a moment where something is communicating with this part of you and it's not here, it's here and and it's moving you and it strikes you and it feels almost like there was something dormant in you that was awoken by some type of signal from something spiritual that just started to knock on the door and you got an insight or a moment. Maybe you were emotional. You see, that's what your heart is. It's doing that. It's responding to the signals of the world and it understands. You see, our hearts open up when they're touched by God. But the reality of that is that that heartfelt moment doesn't last. That's why Paul tells Timothy to stir up, to stir up the gift stir up what God is doing in your life. You gotta stir it up because your heart doesn't just naturally lead you down good paths or respond. It can also be evil. The Bible says your heart is a muscle and it can be evil and it can be wicked and it can be deceitful and it can lead you in the wrong direction. This is what makes it so powerful right? It has the power to respond to the echoes of the chambers of God and move in a direction that is almost indescribable. And yet it can also be lured into the gross realities of everyday human living without God. So God tells us that we have to guard it. And what that means is that if you want your heart, if your heart wants what God wants, then you need to follow it. And if it wants something else, you need to pray and you need to lead it. So don't let your heart lead you. You have to lead your heart. You have to come to the place where you understand its strength. And then you go, okay, we're gonna set you on a new heading. We're gonna set you towards what God wants. So how Do we start to love what God wants? The first thing is this. It's just this simple command. Love is our duty. Love is our job. You know, sometimes you you have a job and you don't wanna do your job, right? I mean, raise your hand if you've ever not wanted to do your job. Everybody should raise their hand, right? Right? You gotta do it, right? Have you ever signed up for something that you love and you're like, I love this. I gotta tell you, like, I'm here in this role because I love it, but I don't love it all the time right? I don't. Not at all. There are times, but, but, but I'm passionate about it. And so that's a good thing. So then I can kind of transcend the mundane and the challenges. Because if you don't do what you're passionate about, you'll stop doing what you're doing. Because it's hard even when you love it. So I love what I'm doing, but it's really hard. So a lot of times I'll do it because I'm like, this is my job. And I have to like, I just tell myself, this is my job. This is my job to do. And so what you have to understand first and foremost is like Jesus is not some kind of you know, soft leader in the sense that he just kind of allows or thinks of you as a person that can just do whatever you want and he'll, kind of, he'll tailor your pathway specifically to you. He would sit in front of all of us and say, okay, first of all, you have to love people if you're one of my disciples. You have to, you have to do it. And in the command, that's what he says in John, a new command. Now, when they hear the word command, that's not a command like what you and I hear, like what your teacher told you to do, or even what like the the local police, like stop at the sign is to command, you know, that. No, 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 this is like ancient. God took his finger and wrote on some rocks and it formed, shaped, and gave life to our entire uh, ancestors, our entire history as a people. The the commands, the law mattered to the people that were sitting in this room with Jesus. I command you to love one another. A new commandment. That's like Moses gave the commandments. The commandments came from God. So Jesus is kind of saying to them, they're they're not quite certain, I'm at least as important as Moses. They don't understand that he was the one that wrote on the rock and gave the law to Moses in a manner of speaking. So it's your duty. And sometimes... We all have to wake up, we all have to have moments where our hearts don't wanna do what God wants us to do, but we go, tough, it's time to go to bed. You gotta go, you gotta do it, you gotta love them. I'm gonna talk more about this in coming weeks. Forgiveness is your job. Isn't that interesting? Oh, I forgive because Jesus changes my heart. Well, he's in the process of changing your heart, and remember, your heart leaks, so that person you know, they may get real, like the lower piece of you. Yeah, I'm not gonna forgive them because I don't feel it because I'm bitter, because I'm angry. And Jesus would go, no, 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 you have to forgive them. It is your job to forgive them. If you wanna be one of my disciples, you gotta forgive them. But I don't feel it. Well, we'll get there. I've talked about that before. Dallas Willard said this, our duty and our virtue is to love those with whom we are in effectual contact those we can really do something about, it's our command and it leads to life. And that's the other beauty that I've already talked about. When you do what God says, if you ever had a boss that says, just do this, I promise this will work. I know the way, I've done this before. Do what I say and watch the fruit. Watch it come out that way. And if it doesn't work, it's my fault. Just do what I say. You, You gotta do it. He's saying, I'm telling you. This is the way to live, man. This is life. You want your heart to come alive? You wanna be continually touched by heaven? Do it when you don't feel it. And eventually you will, because that's the second part. Habits are what change our hearts. Habits are what change our hearts. This is why information is only part of the answer. Because you have to learn what to do. You have to get the information. You have to understand and read what Jesus said. You have to learn from him and get the direction. But once you get the information, you have to move towards a life of transformation. And the information only does enough to send you on the right heading. And then you have to build in habits. The two greatest practices related to habit are imitation and practice in the sense of repetitive planned times of rehearsal, right? So you want to become a being of love? You have to imitate Jesus. You have to imitate him. You just have to like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you imitate him, and then you practice what you imitated. And then over time, eventually, the thing that he said would make your heart come alive will make your heart come alive. And doing what God wants you to do will make you feel like you have become the being that he created you to be. You see, Jesus is defined by loving people because that's what he wants. He wants you. That's why he came here. That's why he emptied himself of his attributes and Jesus came God in the flesh because he wants you. So he's defined by love. That's what we think about when we think about Jesus, right? That he came on a mission, that he did it because his heart was there. When Jesus went onto the cross, Paul calls it a demonstration. What is in Jesus's heart? To love every one of us. Paul says, but God demonstrates his love. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says again in Ephesians, he says, live a life of love. Just as Christ Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. So here's what you have to do in order to get your heart to want what God wants. You need to make habits of what God wants until it becomes what you want. And James Smith said this, when you have acquired the sorts of virtues that are second nature, it means that you've become the kind of person who is inclined to the good. You will be be kind and compassionate and forgiving because it's inscribed in your very character as a result of your habit forming. You don't have to think about it. It's who you are. And then he says this, and this is a good litmus test. In fact, if I have to deliberate, about whether to be compassionate. compassionate, it's a sign I lack the virtue. Do you naturally want to love and respond to the people that, the way that Jesus would? We don't practice habits related to, to what you uh, believe God wants you to desire, your deepest desires and start to practice those. Now here's a trick and then we'll be done. If I start to tell you to just do the little things that Jesus wants you to do, then very quickly, the Christian life can become a task, a list of tasks. Okay, so I need to forgive people and I need to be kind and I need to practice this and I need to practice this and I need to practice this. I wanna, I wanna reverse engineer that. I want you to think of this differently. I want you to back up for a second. Think of the real story that you wanna live right now. Think of the real story. Like think in terms of cinema and books and characters. And who do you wanna be? Who do you want? How do you want the author to describe you? What type of journey in life do you want to go on? I want you to imagine that. I want you to to kind of put on it your heart's deepest fulfillment, your picture of flourishing. What does it look like? And does it honor God? Does that honor God? Is it beautiful and does it fit being an image bearer? If not, if your vision for you doesn't match with God, then pray that God gives you vision. God, give me like a goal. Like I wanna know what loving looks like in my context. Like how do I, what am I aiming for? What is the story? What is the narrative? And then once you have that, you align your life down the pathway to that vision. And you start to do the little disciplines because you know that every single one leads to that vision. Discipline is the distance between where you are and your ultimate vision. And here's the thing, if your vision doesn't take discipline, it's not big enough. If your vision doesn't take hard work, if it doesn't take real commitment daily, then it's not big enough. If you can just kind of pull it off, it's not big enough. It needs to be God-sized, it needs to be his command, it needs to be full of you being this being of self-giving love and how that would shape and shift your world. And if your vision doesn't take you pouring out your life with self-giving love, then it's not God's vision. Isn't it funny the way we think about vision? It's like, God, would you do something for me? God, would you give me something? God, would you set it up? God, would you make the narrative? God, would you fix the circumstances? And I think what God tells you to do is is to go, no, 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 I want you to envision you doing it. You do it. You fix the circumstances. You leverage your time, energy, your talent. You bring who you are to the table and pour it out. And I want you to think about what would happen if you poured out your life. What would that look like? that's the path. Today, we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna pray. And today's prayer Sunday And what that means is once a month, we have an opportunity for you to come forward and pray. And today we're going to um, give you that opportunity. You can pray for the vision for your life. You can pray for your heart's wants and desires. One of the most beautiful things you can do is come to God and confess your sin. Because when you confess your sins to God, what you're doing is you're aligning your vision next to His. And if you wanna spark your imagination, confess your sins. Because God's image is that this kingdom gets built and God's like plan is you and me. And so when we're living in like this kind of off path, this sin path, we're, like, we're, not, we're not imagining what God has. And so part of confession is to come and imagine what God has. God, what do you have for me? Here's what I have for you and I wanna lay it down. I wanna confess it, it's over. I, give me something new today that I can move towards and start to dream about what the kingdom of God would look like through you fully submitted to him. You can come forward when I'm done praying and you can, you can come and pray and we'll have people up here to pray with and you can you can pray about that. You can confess, you can sit in your seat and pray. And it's important, I think, that we take a moment and we recognize that, in our world right now, in, in, in the nation of Israel, that there is a manifestation of evil and hate that is, is just an ironic picture of what Jesus talked about the kingdom of God not looking like. And the kingdom of God that he defined on this Mount of Olives, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount, that very place is under fire. Because this is not God's way. And this is the same problem that happened the moment that humans left the garden. This is the blood of Abel. It just continues to cry out. There just continues to be this, this hate and this evil that can exist inside the hearts of men that would hurt women and children and, 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 and attack one another with brutal violence. And it is, it is, it should be kind of a, a sobering reminder, um, maybe there's a call to action that you have that's different. And also that there's still so much more that God wants for this world. And what he wants is what we've been talking about this whole morning. He wants humans to be transformed into beings of love. And this kind of belief and these ideologies and this war is the opposite of that. And God needs us, wants us to move into the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about this vision for the kingdom of God. And N.T. Wright says this, I I love this. He says, when God wants to sort out the world, as the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount make clear, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the broken, the justice-hungry, the peacemakers, the pure-hearted. And so we're also gonna take a moment and pray for those suffering as a result of evil. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Father, thank you for your love and and your picture. Thank you for not sending us down a pathway that you didn't provide for us for. Thank you so much, God. Um, We lift up right now to you the people in Israel who are suffering and who are um, victims of violence for those that have lost loved ones for those that are in in utter fear and darkness, for those that are wounded. And Father, we just come to you in the name of Jesus and we, we just, we know, God, your heart is heavy that your children would treat one another this way. We know, God, that it's just not your picture, it's not It's not right, and Father, we've seen what the kingdom of God can do through hearts and hands surrendered to you. I pray in the name of Jesus that we would continue to march forward with the mission of the kingdom of God and share the love of Jesus and and spread the gospel of your kingship and your lordship, God. And it is in you we fully trust I mean there's just no other name that this type of violence will cease. There's just no other person who could command and, and navigate all the complexities of, of the different um, different nations and different ch- challenges and wars and fightings. And God, you are the one. The government could be on your shoulders. And you can be the Prince of Peace, because you are. Father, in the meantime, you, you sent us out as your church, your gathering, your doers, God, and help us to not just allow what it means to follow you to be something that lives in our heads, but God, that strikes our hearts. And if we've forgotten how you've spoken to us, help us to stir it up. And if we need vision, God, give us vision. Father, we love you and and we're just grateful for the opportunity to worship and to take a moment of, of quietness. We're thankful for the opportunity to come into this room and worship you and sing songs about your faithfulness and to hear about who you really are. Help us to constantly remain humble so that who you are um, becomes more real to us. And it's not that we shape you, but you shape us to be like you. We love you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.